Let's go to the Lord in prayer once again. You are gracious, oh God, and we are needy people. Father, uh, help us to remember that when we come to the end of our hoarded resources, your full giving has only begun because you lavished your grace, Paul says. You lavished your grace upon us. You poured it out on us in Jesus Christ. And, and Father, not just in the past, but you continually, because Jesus is our once-for-all sacrifice, you continually pour your grace onto us. We live in grace. We breathe grace because of your Son, because we're wrapped in his righteousness. And you treat us as if we lived his life instead of our sinful, wretched life. That is wonderful news. And may we rejoice in it now. May we worship you, Father, this morning. May you work through me to rightly divide your truth, to explain it in a way that is worshipful from my heart to the hearts of your people. May they worship you by listening. And may we all worship you by heeding your words and by your grace obeying your words for your glory. I thank you, God. For Jesus, and it is in his name we pray. Amen. This morning we come to a familiar text, most likely a familiar text for everybody in this room. No matter if you've been going to church your entire life or this is the first Sunday you've ever walked into a church, you've probably heard the words, judge not lest ye be judged. 30 years ago, it can be argued that the most well-known verse of Scripture in our culture was John 3.16. But that verse doesn't really help serve the sinful purposes of our hearts, does it? So, now, Matthew 7.1 can be rattled off with great ease in our culture. And it's postmodern air, so to speak. Even though a large representation of the population can't tell you what the word lest means in that verse. We use it. We rattle it off. It comes to our minds with great ease. As a culture, I think we use the King James Version because it sounds like we know what we're talking about, right? And uh, people assume we don't use words that we don't understand. So we still use this verse in that translation. But This verse, why is it so well known? Because the world, and yes, the church, uses it as a death blow defense against accusations. The human heart wants to do what it wants to do, and it doesn't want to feel bad about doing it. And so, Matthew 7, 1, taken out of its context, is used to keep us feeling good about doing bad. If it is perceived by someone living in sin that uh, a Christian is even implying that their choices might be wrong, this verse will often be used as if to say, boom, there you go. What are you going to do now? I just took took a verse out of your holy book, and I threw it back in your face. What are you going to do? 
The view of the person using Matthew 7.1 as a weapon is usually like that of, let's say, an unarmed soldier in combat who has approached his enemy. doesn't have a gun, but he's approached his enemy, and he sees an opportunity to protect himself. So he grabs the gun from his enemy's holster and points it at his enemy, takes the enemy's gun and uses it against him. What can the opposing soldier do? His weapon is being used against him now, and he is the one who's unarmed. Well, the person that's using Matthew 7-1 as a weapon believes he has cleverly reversed the outcome of what he has perceived to be an attack. But what he doesn't realize is that the safety on the gun that he's holding is still on. The safety on the gun is on. In other words, the gun can't be used as a weapon that way. Similarly, when a person is trying to use Matthew 7-1 as a defensive weapon to prevent any kind of judgment on their lives, they don't understand that that verse can't be used as a weapon in the way that they are seeking to use it. Truth be told, many Christians don't know that the safety is on either. So they are left speechless when their own Bible is used against them like this. And as we'll see, the reason why this verse can't be used in the way humanity wants it to be used is because we use it as a weapon to protect our self-righteousness, don't we? We use Matthew 7, 1, judge not lest ye be judged. We use that as a weapon to protect our own self-righteousness. But Jesus intended it to be used as a weapon to attack our own self-righteousness. My goal this morning is for us to walk away knowing how to use this text of Scripture to attack the self-righteousness in our own hearts. So Lord... Please clear the fog in all of us. Let's look at the context. First, why don't you turn with me to the text. Uh, it's a Matthew 7, 1 through 6. Turn with me there or scroll with me there. Matthew 7, 1 through 6. Now, each time the elders give me an opportunity to preach, I take the next text of Scripture in the Sermon on the Mount. It's Matthew chapters 5 through 7. And in this morning's text... We're beginning chapter 7. Now, in journeying through the Sermon on the Mount, it is important to remember that Jesus is preaching these words to people who belong in the kingdom of God. They belong to the kingdom of God. They are those people who, through faith and submission to King Jesus, are his subjects, citizens of the kingdom of God. Martin Lloyd-Jones says it like this, the words of this sermon are addressed to people of whom the Beatitudes are true. So the people he is speaking to, if you remember uh, at the beginning of our study in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, it, the Beatitudes are at the very beginning of chapter 5, and so the people he is speaking to in this sermon are the poor in spirit, right? Having nothing before God but sin. Those who mourn over their sin. Those who are gentle. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, etc. In short, these words are addressed to people who have been saved by the preacher of the sermon, 
on the mount, Jesus. And left to himself, there's no person who can believe the truths of the Sermon on the Mount, obey the commands of the Sermon on the Mount, and heed the warnings of the Sermon on the Mount by himself. It is only through Christ that we can believe and heed and do these things. Jesus is telling us what loyal subjects of the kingdom of God believe and what they do. Today, Jesus takes us to the issue of personal judgment. So uh, let's read our text for this morning, Matthew 7, 1 through 6. Jesus says, Do not judge so that you will not be judged. For in the way that you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give what is holy to dogs, and do not throw your pearls before swine, or they will trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. In this text... Jesus walks us through four components of right judgment, okay? Four components of right, uh, right judgment. I'm going to give them to you. Number one, remember you're not God. Number one, remember you're not God. Number two, remember you're guilty also. Number three, remember to repent, then help. And remember the value of the gospel. Number four, that's remember you're not God. Remember you're guilty too. Remember to repent, then help. And remember the value of the gospel. Number one, remember you're not God. Taken from verses one and two. As I've already mentioned, this verse is most often used to say that no person may judge whether another person's choices are wrong. That's how it's used most often. So, is that true? Is Jesus commanding us to abandon all discernment and tolerate sinful practices? Let's jump a few verses down to the verse that I just finished reading in our text. Okay? Verse 6, right? Do not give what is holy to dogs, and do not throw pearls before swine. So if we jump down to that verse, we see that Jesus is telling us to use a standard of judgment to determine which people are the dogs and the pigs who, should, who we should not continue to pursue with the gospel. He is calling us to discern who the antagonistic people are toward the gospel, the belligerent ones, and their response to the gospel, so that we... Don't continue giving them the gospel, but rather uphold the value of the gospel. So he's calling us to judge, isn't he? Jesus is calling us to judge in verse 6, just a few verses down from judge not so that you will not be judged. We also see in John chapter 7, verse 24, that Jesus gives us another command, but it is a command to judge instead of a command to uh, Instead of a command to judge not, Jesus says in John 7, 24, do not judge according to appearance, 
but judge with righteous judgment. Judge with righteous judgment. So if there is such a thing as righteous judgment, and Jesus tells us to use this judgment, then judge not so that you will not be judged cannot mean we should not determine right from wrong or call sin, sin. You may be thinking, it sounds like Jesus is contradicting himself. He's saying, judge not in Matthew 7, but in John 7, he's saying, judge. Is he contradicting himself? Which is it? See, John 7 tells us there is a kind of judgment that is righteous in God's sight. It's a kind of judgment that we should use, we should pursue. But Matthew chapter 7 is saying that there's a kind of judgment that is unrighteous in God's sight, that we should not use, that we should not pursue. Matthew 7.1 is condemning a specific kind of judgment, okay? Not all kinds of judgment, but a specific kind of judgment. So what kind of judgment is Jesus condemning in Matthew 7.1? Judge not refers to a self-righteous judgment. That's what Jesus is condemning here, a self-righteous judgment. It is a judgment that was characterized, that is characterized by the Pharisees that we see in the Sermon on the Mount as Jesus describes them and and teaches uh, the people not to follow in their example or heed their teachings. It was characterized by the Pharisees and the scribes in Jesus' day. They were the religious leaders in Israel when Jesus showed up on the scene. And we have seen in the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus had come to overturn what they had been teaching the Jews for the last few hundred years. The phrase that we've seen repeated in the Sermon on the Mount is this, you have heard it said, but I say to you. This was directed toward the Pharisees. Jesus was directing the statement at the religious leaders of the day. He directed it toward them so as to say, they told you this but I'm the final authority, so listen to me. That's what he was saying to the people. Don't listen to them. They've told you this, but I'm the authority. Listen to what I have to say now. And we see also in chapter 6, Jesus refers to the Pharisees as hypocrites, commanding his audience not to be like them in the way of trying to attract the praise of man with outward displays of holiness. And so now in our text, Jesus is saying, don't be like the Pharisees in the way that you judge people because they judge with a self-righteous judgment. Jesus says to the Pharisees in Luke 16, 15, you are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men. And one of the ways they would do this would be to exalt themselves over others by condemning them according to a standard of judgment they created for themselves. We see this in the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke 18. Would you turn with me there? Luke 18, 9 through 14. Luke 
Luke 18, 9 through 14. So both men in this story, the Pharisee and the tax collector, they go up to the temple to pray. And as the Pharisee prays, it becomes obvious that he is seeking to justify himself by comparing himself to the tax collector when he prays this. God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all I get. It is obvious that the Pharisee is not looking to God to justify him, but rather to his own good deeds in contrast to others. He he lists fasting twice a week as one of his good deeds. But here's something interesting. The law of Moses only requires the people of God to fast one time a year once a year on the Day of Atonement. And he's saying, I fast twice a week. Why is, why is that important? Because he was comparing himself to the tax collector using a standard that he created and added to God's word. His own standard. This kind of judgmental spirit is what Jesus is referring to in Matthew 7.1. In reference to, to Jesus' command to judge not, John MacArthur writes this. Thank Pharisees. And then thank yourself as well. An inseparable corollary of justifying oneself is condemning others. When anyone elevates himself, everyone else is lowered accordingly. The Pharisees, what, what he's saying here is the Pharisees were doing all they could to lift themselves up in their own eyes, including acting as spiritual judges by condemning other people. The Pharisees were doing everything they could, everything they could think of to make themselves seem, appear holy. They weren't comparing themselves to God, though, were they? They were comparing themselves to God. No, that would obliterate their self-righteousness, right? But they were seeking to preserve and protect their self-righteousness. So they had to clean themselves up on the outside, right? Whitewashed tombs. And then they had to compare themselves to other people who didn't seem as holy as them. We see this all the time in children, don't we? Now I'm going to use my, my boys to illustrate this. But you got to know, I know giving this illustration that these boys are sinners just like their daddy. Okay, they're sinners just like their daddy. My son Peter, he's, uh, he's getting very skilled at picking up when his brother Justin, right? We got um, Justin who's two and a half, and Peter's about to turn five next month, okay? So Peter's getting very skilled at picking up when his brother Justin is having a particularly rebellious day, okay? He sees the signs, picks up on the clues. And when he recognizes this, he likes to be in the same room as Justin. He likes to be in the same room as Justin when Justin is breaking down and throwing a hissy fit or, or kind of sticking his finger in our face and telling us no like he does. Peter likes to be right there. Why? Why does he want to be right there next to his brother when he's, he's throwing a fit? Why? Because he wants to show himself by stark contrast as the good son, right? 
you know? He's over here like on the floor, rolling around, screaming his head off. And Peter's over here kind of just, you know, the good son. He wants to be seen in that contrast, in that light as the obedient one. And you know what? If we're not in the room, Peter's very quick to let us know when Justin is doing something he shouldn't be doing. And he's very quick to also let us know that he is not doing what Justin is doing. Right? I just want to let you know, (laughs) Justin's doing this, but I'm not. I'm sitting still on the bed reading the Bible. (laughs) Now, I know that just, I, I know that Peter cares for his brother Justin. We see signs of this. But on these occasions, Peter is usually not looking out for Justin's best interest. He's usually not thinking, Justin is making a sinful choice. And I don't want him to feel the full extent of his folly. So I must let daddy and mommy know so that they can help him. He's not thinking that. He's usually thinking something like, Now's my time to shine, baby. Tucks in the shirt. How do I know this? How do I know that's what he's thinking? Because I do the same thing. I do the same thing. I just make it less obvious. And so do you. We're all guilty of this self-righteous spirit. It's easy for us to look at the Pharisees and go, but... We're guilty too. And this self-righteous spirit leads us to condemn others so that we shine the brighter by contrast. We must remember that Jesus is not giving the command, judge not, as a weapon to preserve or protect our self-righteousness, but he's giving it as a weapon to be used in attacking our self-righteousness. So how do we identify if we are using a self-righteous judgment. I got a list here, um, a list of 12 things that usually accompany self-righteous judgment. 12 things that usually accompany self-righteous judgment. Now, here's some instruction for you as I'm reading this list. Think of yourself. Evaluate yourself, okay? No, yourself, okay? Number one, Seeking to judge the motives of others, right? Like you know their hearts. Seeking to judge the motives of others. Number two, holding others to your own personal convictions in addition to the standard in the Bible. I'm going to have these online uh, later this week in case you don't get all of them holding others to your own personal convictions. Number three, judging people before asking questions and getting the details, right? Just assuming you know what's going down and making a judgment call without getting the details. Number four, judging by appearance alone, thinking what I see is exactly how it's going down. Judging by appearance alone. Number five, looking for evidences of failure before looking for evidences of grace, right? Are you quick? Are you quick to see all the, all the ways that people are failing and sinning? Or are you quicker to see how God is working in their lives? 
Are you quicker to see the evidences of his grace poured out in their lives? Number six, a tendency toward being hypercritical and nitpicky. Number seven, delight at finding fault in others. Is this true of you? It is of me. More often than I realize, more often than I want to admit, getting excited when you see other people fail and sin because it makes you look better. Number eight, disappointment when you don't find fault in others. Number nine, when it comes to others, making mountains out of molehills, right? Taking something that can, you know, is, by comparison, you know, yes, it's, it's bad, but you're taking it, it's, it's a smaller thing, and you're blowing it out of proportion. You're making it huge. Making mountains out of molehills. Number 10, sensitivity to the sins of others, but blindness to your own sins. Sensitivity to other sins, but blindness to your own. Number 11, a failure to receive correction with humility. Becoming defensive whenever you're confronted on anything. Number 12, a desire to expose the sin in others, but not to help address it. Just leaving them there after you've showed them their sin. That was a beating, wasn't it? Please know there's hope in this sermon. There's hope. The reality is that this kind of spirit has us trying to assume the role of God. In a spirit of self-righteousness, we judge people as if we have the knowledge of God, right? As if we know the hearts of men. Has us assuming the, the role of God as if we can hold them to our standard of judgment that we've created, as if we've made the law they must adhere to. And we act as if we're God in making a final definitive ruling on their souls. We try to be like God, but we forget that God is also merciful. When we act in this way, we need to remember that we are not God because Jesus makes it clear that if we want to act as if we are God in judging others, then what does he say in our text? Then he says that we will incur the same standard of judgment from God himself. See, a heart that is characterized by a self-righteous, judgmental spirit, is a, it is a heart like that of the Pharisees. A heart that does not recognize that it deserves judgment. And because it doesn't recognize it deserves judgment. It cannot receive mercy because it does not recognize that it needs mercy. A heart that is characterized by self-righteousness is a heart that has not received the, the mercy that comes only through faith in Jesus Christ. It's one thing for our hearts to dip into this spirit. We, we all are guilty of this judgmental, self-righteous spirit, to dip into the spirit sporadically, but then to come out in repentance, right, by God's grace. But when this spirit is so familiar to you that it feels like home, then it is a sign of not having tasted mercy. A sign that you will experience God's judgment 
unless, this is a big unless, unless you recognize your attempt to be like God. Confess it to him. Plead with him for mercy on the basis of his son, Jesus, who died in the place of sinners, and trust only him to save you from the judgment that you deserve. Then, and only then, You will taste mercy, and that mercy will lead you to extend mercy to others in loving obedience to your Savior. And what about those of you who have tasted mercy, but you slip in to this judgmental spirit on occasion, like we all do? Well, this is a call for you to remember the mercy you've been shown through Jesus. It's it's a call for you to preach the gospel to yourself. You have been justified in Christ. Stop trying to justify yourselves by comparing yourselves to other people who aren't like you, aren't doing what you think you're doing. Stop trying to justify yourself. You're already justified in Christ. You are robed in his righteousness. God treats you as if you lived Jesus' perfect life instead of your own sinful life. When you received salvation, you were wrapped as a robe in the perfect righteousness of Christ so that God treats you as if you lived Jesus' perfect life instead of your sinful life. Now you need to let that realization fill your heart with humility and gratitude that seeks to help other sinners grow in Christ's likeness instead of calling out their sin and leaving them there in their guilt to deal with it alone. You need to preach the gospel to yourself. You need to remember the mercy of Christ that you have that is yours daily to push out the seeds of the spirit that are in your heart. A judgmental spirit cannot be cultivated, it cannot thrive in a heart that is overflowing in gratitude because it understands it's received mercy, right? Self-righteous, a self-righteous spirit cannot grow and thrive in a heart of gratitude over mercy. So remember the gospel. So number two in our, our structure here this morning is remember your guilty as well. Remember, you're guilty also. You get, remember, you're not God, but remember, you're guilty too. It's, a, it's kind of an overlap of the last point. We've already kind of touched on this. As we've discussed, Jesus is not saying that we can't call sin, sin, but there is a right way and a wrong way to do it. Before you can point out anyone else's sin, you've got to recognize your own sin first. Again, I'm just going to repeat this over and over again. This text is to be used as a weapon to attack your own self-righteousness, not to protect it. Let's look at verses 3 and 4. Turn back to our text. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye? This is one of those instances where I think Jesus is using hyperbolic humor to make his point. 
right? He's, he's exaggerating things in a humorous way to make a point, right? Uh, just visualize the description with me, right? A guy with a log protruding out of his eye, and he's walking up to somebody with a speck in their eye saying, hey, I think you got a little something there, right? Yeah, no, 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 right there. No, no, no right there. He's got a log coming out of his eye, you know, and the person's kind of like, yeah, but, but you, yeah, well, watch out. You're about to hit that guy. <laughs> now, the speck in this verse is actually bigger than we think. Uh, we tend to think of a speck as something that's uh, almost microscopic that we can barely see with the naked eye, but really it's more like a significant splinter, right? It's small, but when it's in your eye, it's still a big deal, you know? If you've got a splinter in your eye, that's, that's, that's a big deal. It hurts. It's hard to get it out. Um, yet the log is still much larger. A self-righteous spirit blinds us, church. A self-righteous spirit blinds us to our own sin, no matter how glaring the sin may be, right? Log out of the eye, pretty glaring to everybody else, but it doesn't mean that self-righteous spirit does not look at it and see righteousness instead. A uh, good example of this is found in 2 Samuel 12, 1 through 7. Why don't we turn there? 2 Samuel 12, 1 through 7. So you can follow along and look at the text as I'm talking about it here. This is Nathan's rebuke of David. David has committed adultery and uh, tried to cover it up with deceit and murder. Yet his response to Nathan's rebuke makes it clear that his sin and its severity is far from his mind. So Nathan's parable that he tells David goes like this. You've read it. It's a poor man and a rich man. The poor man has a a little lamb that he loves. The lamb is part of his family. He's taking it into his home. He feeds the lamb, treats it like it's a son or a daughter. And the text says that the lamb sleeps in his arms. The family loves this lamb. It's one of them. Rich man has much livestock, many sheep, many cattle. A traveler comes to the rich man, and instead of taking one of his sheep, he goes and takes the little lamb from the poor man and kills that lamb to use for the traveler. So what is David's response to the story? In verses 5 and 6, we read, Then David's anger, uh, David was angered greatly against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. He must make restitution for the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing and had no compassion. And what does Nathan say? The man is you. The man is you. It doesn't matter how obvious the sin is to anyone else, right? Um, You think, we we look at David's story and we think adultery, lies, murder, pretty big sins, right? But he's listening to the parable that Nathan is telling him, and his sin isn't what he thinks of. It doesn't matter how obvious the sin is to anyone else. A judgmental spirit will look and see an illusion of righteousness. Are you ready to pounce 
on other people's wrongdoings and failures? Do you seethe with anger as you watch people drag God's glory through the mud? You may see this as a reason to feel good about yourself, but it may be a symptom of self-righteous judgment, a self-righteous spirit, because it is often the case that the holier we think we are, the angrier we are when people aren't like us or as we perceive ourselves to be. Now, please don't misunderstand me. Jesus is not saying that we shouldn't be angry at the sins of others. He's not saying that. Certainly, we should be angry at the sins of others. But God must be the object of that anger, right? Because he's the one who's been offended. And so we're angry because he has been disgraced. And it should only come with a recognition and anger toward our sin first. An anger, a seething hatred of our sin first. Therefore, we've got to pray like David in Psalm 139, 23, and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. We must examine ourselves so that we recognize our guilt before we go pointing out other people's guilt to them. We are guilty also. Which brings us to our third point. Remember, repent, and then help. Repent and then help. Now, when we're talking about examining ourselves, it is not so that we can remember our sinfulness, and wallow in despair and self-pity as if that will help us earn favor with God? No, that's not why we examine ourselves. It's not so we can see the sin and just feel condemned and dip into depression. That's not why we evaluate ourselves. That's not why we examine ourselves. No, self-examination is always for the purpose of recognizing our sin and then carrying it to the cross recognizing our sin, seeing our sin, having it exposed to our eyes and then carrying it to the cross where it flies away as far as the east is from the west. Then, entrusting that we are forgiven of that sin, we are to work in the grace of God toward change and faithfulness in that area of our lives so that we can help others do the same. This is, this is rem- remembering to repent and then help. In regard to our text, one pastor points out that this text is calling us to see everyone clearly in light of truth, right? We need to see God clearly first, right? As our Redeemer who chose to show us mercy instead of judge us. We got to see God clearly first. And then we've got to see ourselves clearly as guilty sinners saved by grace who still sin and still need to repent and still need grace. And then we will see others clearly. When we see God and we see ourselves clearly, we will see others clearly as people on the same level as us who need mercy and grace as well. Turn with me to Luke 9, 
having us bounce around today. It's a good thing, though, right? Scripture, interpret Scripture. Luke 9, 51 through 56. Let's look at an example here, and then we'll look at another text that will contrast it for us. Luke writes, starting in verse 51, When the days were approaching for his ascension, Jesus was determined to go to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers on ahead of him, and they went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him. But they did not receive him because he was traveling toward Jerusalem. And when, he, he, when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them and said, You do not know what kind of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went on to another village. James and John are ready to smoke the Samaritans, right? Let's bring down fire on them, Jesus. Some brimstone too. Do you think that they were seeing things clearly? Were they seeing God clearly? Were they seeing themselves clearly and seeing the Samaritans clearly? Of course not. They needed to remember that they are not God. And they need to remember that they're guilty too so they can repent and be ready to help in light of Jesus' reason for coming to earth to save. Now, let's look at a guy who did see things clearly. Psalm 51. David, right? David's helping us out a lot this morning. Psalm 51 Okay, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read different verses from this chapter. I'm not going to go in uh, the typical order. I hope that's okay for you. <laughs> so uh, listen with me. I'm going to start out in verse 4. David writes, after his sin with Bathsheba, he's repenting after Nathan's rebuked him. He says, against you, you only, speaking to God, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. See, David is seeing God clearly. He's seeing God as the judge, not him. God is the judge. Go with me to verse 1. He prays to God, Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. So not only is he seeing God clearly as judge, but he's seen God clearly as a loving God, a merciful God who will blot out his transgressions. Now, go with me to verse 5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. So David sees God clearly. Now he sees himself clearly, right? He was born into sin, right? He has a sinful heart, a sinful nature. He sees himself correctly. And then, look at verse 7, and then uh, we'll look at verses 10 through 12 as well. Verse 7, he says, Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Verse 10, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and sustain me with a willing spirit. What's he doing? 
right? He sees God correctly. He sees himself correctly. Now he's repenting. God, clean me. Give me a new heart, a a spirit that will sustain me so that I can do what you want me to do. Then, after the repentance, he sees other people clearly. Look, verse 13. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. See, he sees them as a transgressor. He sees them as transgressors just like him, sinners just like him, who need to know God's ways, who need to be converted. After he sees God clearly, after he sees himself clearly, after he he repents, then he can see people correctly on the same level as him, and now he's ready to help them, point them to God. If we're going to confront sin in others, and help them repent. We must confront the sin in ourselves and repent of it first so we'll be ready to help them. Now, a caveat that I want to use with this point is that you should not think that you have to be perfect to help someone turn from their sin and pursue faithfulness with God again. You should not think that you have to be perfect. You may think, I'm messed up too, right? There's always something that a person can throw back in my face if I were to confront their sin. Yes, that's true. If someone wants to find something wrong with you, they can find it if they want to. But if you have taken the sin that you know about in your life to God, asked his forgiveness and have turned from that sin, then you have a responsibility and a privilege to expose that person's sin, call them to repentance, and do so with loving care. Now, how that person responds is between them and God, right? If they don't respond the way they should respond, that's between them and God. You have done what you were commanded to do, and you can take joy in being faithful to your king. But you've got to remember this. God uses messed up people to help messed up people. We're a bunch of imperfect people helping each other. And we need to do more of this kind of ministry. Yes, attacking the self-righteousness in our own hearts, bringing it to God, asking for his forgiveness, repenting, but we need to be going out there and stop, stopping the excuses and helping people repent. Helping people remember the gospel. Helping people toward faithfulness to their king. One final word on this point is that the entire concept of helping someone when you judge them righteously flies in the face of the self-righteous judgment that Jesus is condemning. Uh, When we judge with a self-righteous judgment, we expose sin only to leave the sinner there alone in his guilt, without hope, needing mercy, and trying to pick up the pieces without you. That's what self-righteous judgment does, right? Leaves the person there alone. Deal with it. But we're called to a merciful A self-righteous judgment says this. You've got a gaping wound. Looks really bad. 
And then it turns around to walk away while thinking, man, I'm glad I'm not in that mess. But when we use a merciful judgment, a merciful judgment says to a person, you've got a gaping wound. It looks really bad, but I know what that wound is like. I get them all the time. You need to go to the doctor, the one doctor. Come on, let me take you. You get the difference? Self-righteous judgment exposes the sin. Deal with it. I'm leaving you here. I'm glad I'm not like you. And then the merciful judgment says, it looks really bad. I know you've got a wound, but I know what that's like because I get those kinds of wounds all the time. I'm like you, but I know you need to go to the doctor, the one doctor. I know where you need to go and I will take you there. Come with me. If we're going to help flies in the face of self-righteous judgment. Now this right of judgment has a fourth component. And we see it in verse 6. And we turn back to Matthew 7. We've already read it. It's the uh, commandment of Jesus not to give what is holy to dogs or throw your pearls before swine or they will trample them under their feet and turn and tear you also. Part of the right judgment that Jesus is calling us to includes remembering the value of the gospel. That's our fourth point. Remember the value of the gospel. It includes remembering the value of the gospel and refusing to continue to share the gospel with people who are antagonistic toward it. Dogs and pigs were seen as repulsive animals to first century Jews so that the thought of giving them anything of value was insane to them. Dogs and pigs in this text represent people who not only refuse to see the beauty and the value of the gospel, but those who mock it as if it were foolish or respond to it with belligerence as if it were an atrocity. This is one of those commandments that's, that's hard for us, I think. It's hard for us to swallow, to think that there are people that we should not continue to share the gospel with. But I think this, I think that if we study the gospel more and more, then we'll be confronted with its striking magnificence. And we will desire to uphold it and honor it by refusing to bring it to those who would despise it and spit on it. Now, another caveat, and that is, don't use this as an excuse to not evangelize. Don't use this as an excuse. We need to share the gospel. We need, we, we need to be excited about the gospel because it's valuable, because it's the treasure, because it's the only hope that we have. We should be taking it to the people who need it. We should be taking it to sinners because people took it to us, and God saved us, and we should extend that to other people. We should be evangelists. We should share so go out there and do that. Cast the seed of the gospel, and you'll recognize when people are antagonistic toward the gospel. You, it'll be obvious who you shouldn't continue sharing the gospel with, but don't let it be an excuse. Let me close us today with a reminder. I've been repeating it all sermon. This text is a weapon to attack self-righteousness 
not to protect it and preserve it. So a summary of Jesus' teaching here, because it is a weapon to attack self-righteousness, could be, judge not till you have judged yourself. Judge not until you have judged yourself. But we've got to remember this. But for, for those of us who have trusted in Jesus to save us from our sins, the judgment that we bring to ourselves to expose our sin must always come with a remembrance that God's judgment, his final judgment for our sin fell on his son. It fell on Jesus. Do not hear me say this morning that you must judge yourself, see your sin, and wallow in self-pity and guilt. No. Every time you expose your sin, every time you judge your sin first, every time you attack your own self-righteousness, you must remember the cross. No thought of your sin should be without a thought of the cross. You're a sinner. You see sin, remember it's forgiven. Grieve over the sin, but be rejoicing in the fact that you have had that sin fly away from you because of Christ, because he took the judgment that you deserve. When we judge ourselves, we must always run back to the cross. We see the sin, we take it as an opportunity every time to remember the gospel, to remember the mercy we've been given so that we will be ready to extend mercy to other people and help them run to the cross and help them repent so they can extend mercy to more people. Growing and changing to become more like Jesus requires that we examine ourselves for sin and help others do the same. But a thought of our sin should never be without a thought of the cross. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we deserve judgment, but we in Christ have been shown mercy. Thank you, God. Help us to remember it. Help us to remember the mercy so it pushes out all seeds of self-righteousness in our hearts so that our hearts overflow and gratitude because of what you've done that we did not deserve. We were, we were deserving of your judgment, but you gave us mercy because your son took judgment in our place. God, please may it lead us to help other people. Extend the mercy of helping them repent and helping them run to the cross and bear fruit and obey and be faithful. God, the gospel in us, as we remember, it should always produce worship. It should always produce obedience. It should always produce extending our arms out to others to help them know you more. Help us now as we go from here not to let this truth end in this room and stop at our ears, but may it flow out of our hearts into our lives and into the lives of others. In Jesus' name we pray.